0: So can I can I um give you a big welcome to the Anna Freud Centre on behalf of the Freud Museum. I've got Ivan Ward from the Freud Museum here. My name is Graham Music and I'm just gonna do a very, very brief introduction to John and the book and then hand over to John. So I think John is pretty well known to most a lot of people here, but I'll do a very very I, I will do a very brief introduction. But I think one of the things that surprised everybody that so we really didn't expect has been a didn 't expect tickets for this event to be selling faster than Glastonbury, so complete sellout really has taken everybody by surprise so um, John, as many people know, is, has worked at the Tavistock clinic for many many years he 's now honorary consultant lifetime honorary consultant and psychotherapist at mm-hmm. the Tavistock, which means we can never get rid of him he's also um, he works at the london deanery he 's been a gp he 's really um, Got such an interesting broad range of interests and and skills. He's um, extremely learned, extremely well written. He's written six books, is that right? Yeah. Including, I think the best title isn't Sex and Survival. That's pretty good. I think the best title is How Not to Be a Doctor, but a, a, and a range of other important books, including the one with Sue Blake, who's who's here. Um, and uh, this book has really tapped a nerve, I think, and for some reason it's take, for some for some reason. So I'm very glad to see so many people here. And I think Sabina would be really thrilled to see such an eclectic group of people here. I think one of the things that she was really keen on is, and couldn't understand, is the kind of tribal loyalty of different groups. And so here we have John, a Tavistock psychotherapist, talking at the Anna Freud Centre. Very good because we didn't used to talk to each other. And we've got the Jungians in the in the audience. We've got some U- Jungians and Freudians. We've got um, systemic family therapy talking to Systemic family therapist talking to a bunch of um, people more interested in psychoanalysis. So I think, I think she'd be really, really thrilled at this event generally, and also at last getting the recognition that she deserves. So um, don't forget you can buy John's book outside. And for any of you who, think, who, who bought and read his first self-published book, don't think you can get away with that because this really is a di- of a different order. This is a book of, of immense scholarship, great detail, and really is... <coughs> really is something. some expression of something very different so on that note I'm going to hand over to John and I'll just be back to take questions a bit later on and I think John in unlike many family therapists I think he said he's going to do about 50 minutes that's as a talk so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay
1: <laughs> good <laughs> thank, thank you very much indeed uh, good I, I, I do have a microphone can you hear me at the back good good Not too well. Thank you. Uh, Francesco, you are able to turn it up. Wonderful. If you, at any point you can't hear, can you just go like that and then I'll know to ask uh, Francesco to turn it up a little. Well, good evening everybody. It's it's absolutely amazing to see um, so many friends here, colleagues, colleagues, ex-colleagues, students, -students, ex-students, all a bit overwhelming. Uh, and I'm thrilled that so many of you were able to turn up this evening um, not least on honour Sabina Spielwein who I'm going to talk about um, This isn't formally a book launch, although it actually rather feels like one. Um, The book was officially released last week, and this is the first public event about it. So it does feel like a a book launch. Um, But being here has personal resonances for me, not only because we're just round the corner from the Tavistock, but also because my... Uh, parents who were like Anna Freud and her father, refugees from Vienna. They lived just up the road in Arkwright Road, so there's all kinds of resonances and coming together for me today. Um, I'm going to talk actually not for the analytic 50 minutes, but only for about 40 minutes, which seems a much more uh, suitable length of time. I do have some slides to show along the way, including the most gorgeous slides of Sabina and her family as I go along. Now, I want to start by taking you on a journey of imagination. I want you to imagine there was a young woman who a hundred years ago suggested that the talking cure should be anchored in human biology and in the theory of evolution in particular. Imagine that the same woman suggested that being a woman gave her special insight into that perspective because of her own understanding of the darker side of reproduction. She thought about the fear of, of domestic and sexual violence, abandonment, seduction, all of which she had experienced herself. Imagine for a moment that her ideas were dismissed by her two most important male colleagues of the time with phrases like, she seems abnormally ambivalent, and what at the top is a lovely woman ends below as a fish. Assume that she tried for many years afterwards to persuade the two men who used those phrases, Freud and Jung as it happens, to understand what she was trying to explain and to understand each other better. Now let your imagination run riot. Imagine that she moved from the world of psychoanalysis to join the pioneers of child development. Imagine that she went on to work with Jean Piaget, became his psychoanalyst, and helped him to develop some of his ideas before moving on to Moscow and teaching the two great giants of Russian psychology, Alexander Luria and Lev Vygotsky. Let's dream on... And suppose she continued to work as a respected paediatrician for many years afterwards, combining ideas from psychoanalysis and child development, and defended Freud publicly in the Soviet Union after psychoanalysis had been proscribed there. If such a person had existed, wouldn't you expect her fame to be at least as great as Anna Freud or Melanie Klein? among the best-known women thinkers of the 20th century, indeed the best-known thinkers of the 20th century, what if someone told you that she was the first psychiatric patient, inpatient, to become a psychoanalyst, the first to write a psychoanalytic dissertation for her medical degree and to have it published, the first to write a detailed case study analytically of a schizophrenic patient. The first to describe analytic treatment and play therapy with children, to write about family relations from the perspective of women, before moving on to describe an analytic approach to the development of language and children's thought. Wouldn't you consider it outrageous and beyond belief that she had been forgotten by the time of her death in the Holocaust, and rediscovered later as an erotic sideshow, because she had once had a brief affair with her psychiatrist. Such a woman did exist, and her name was Sabina Spielrein. In this talk, I want to do three things. I want to give a short account of the mythical version of her life, which has become so well known, and which you may know particularly if you've seen Cronenberg's movie A Dangerous Method then I want to describe how and why I became interested in her and the different narrative I discovered once I had finally I want to say something about how and why she disappeared from view as an original thinker so that the distorted version became canonical first of all the Hollywood version. You can see they got the idea from the cover of my book. (laughs) This version drew largely on books written in the 1980s by Aldo Caratanuto and John Kerr. Aldo Caratanuto was a Jungian analyst and John Kerr a Freudian psychotherapist. And they did so shortly after her personal papers were first discovered. As I found out, much of what they wrote and much that has been derived from their accounts was speculative, and it was wrong. This was partly because Spielrein's hospital notes were not yet available, so they had to guess what happened between her and Jung at that time, and many of her diaries also hadn't yet been released. (coughs) But it was also because neither man was principally interested in Spielrein. They were interested in Jung and Freud and the squabble between them. According to their versions, Spielrein's life went roughly as follows. After a breakdown as a teenager, she ended up in hospital under the sole care of Carl Jung. He tried out psychoanalysis on her for the first time. This was a rapid and remarkable success. She continued to see him for many years in continuing therapy, and this developed into a deep and lasting love affair. Freud interceded, and helped them to separate amicably. Spielrein later became a psychoanalyst of minor distinction, but her affair with Jung inspired him to come up with the concept of the anima, the image of the idealized image of a female that each man carries inside him. She also gave Freud the idea of the death instinct. After she returned to Russia, she turned into a sad and prematurely old lady. Let me say at once that every single detail of this version is wrong. It's either unsupported by the documentary evidence or directly contradicted by it. If you knew these so-called facts before coming here this evening and are experiencing a kind of vertigo on hearing everything turn on its head, I can only apologise. I went through pretty much the same process myself as I researched my book. So much for the myth. Let me now explain how and why I wrote Sex Versus Survival. I didn't want you to look at the other image for too long. <laughs> I started on this journey in the oddest way. When I worked at the Tavistock, I used to teach on an annual training day in management. My role was to design a game where our trainees had to turn themselves into rival institutions and bid against each other for mental health service commissions. It may sound rather bizarre, but I promise you it's no more bizarre than what actually happens in the health service, and this exercise was meant to prepare them for it. I had to invent names for the two institutions and I called one of them the Spielrein Institute. I liked the name because it had that nice jokey Viennese flavour to it rather like New Yorker cartoons and I really didn't know anything about her. So one day it occurred to me that I might be taking her name in vain so I read the books by Cara Tenuto and John Kerr. She sounded interesting so I went to the Tavistock Library and I printed off one of her papers to read Destruction as the cause of coming into being. As I read the opening paragraphs, I experienced an epiphany. My wife, Lee is here and can testify that this isn't a case of false memory syndrome. I called her into the room to explain what I had just read. You can check it with her later. <laughs> What Spielrein was trying to do in that paper was what many neuroscientists and some psychoanalysts are trying to do a hundred years on, to understand the unconscious mind in terms of Darwin's vision of how the living world is driven by the struggle for survival and the imperative to reproduce, sex and survival. I started to read everything I could about Spielrein. I found that a number of scholars had started to deconstruct the myths about her but I discovered there was no proper account of her entire life and work and I felt she deserved one. I began to think that I might one day put a biography together as a retirement project. I was overtaken by events when a friend sent me an email to say did I know David Cronenberg was bringing out a movie about her. Lee encouraged me and helped me to pull together a short 100-page account of her life and ideas, and I self-published it. When I wrote it, I still believed some of the mythology, and if you read that version, uh, you will find that I still subscribe to many of the myths that I've now dismissed. I then experienced what must be every self-published author's dream. Peter Meyer at Duckworth approached me, and I'm absolutely delighted that... Peter is able to come this evening and is sitting at the back has, I don't know whether you've just flown over from New York today Peter but whenever you came it's absolutely wonderful to see you here and Peter asked me if I would be willing to write a proper full-length version illustrated, fully referenced bibliography, the works and insanely I said yes The first thing I did was impossibly cumbersome, but I now realise how important it was. It took me about a year. A surprising number of Spielrein's letters and most of her diaries have been available for ages, but scattered over many different books and journals, and much of it out of print, badly edited and poorly translated. I managed to bring all of it together, and generous friends helped me out with translation. At least one of those very generous friends, Jens Furl, is here this evening somewhere. Are there any other of my translators here? About half a dozen incredibly generous and dedicated friends did this for me. And I interleaved what Spielrein had written with all of Freud's and Jung's letters to her and their letters about her, which often didn't say the same thing. I looked at Spielrein's own academic papers and the commentaries people had written on them. After a year, I had a physical scrapbook, literally, with all the material in chronological order, the majority of it in Spielrein's own words. Although people had written about parts of her life or taken different angles on it, I seem to have been the first to bring all the documentary material together examine each part of it in the light of every other part and base everything I wrote on close readings, particularly where there were major discrepancies between what one of the protagonists said and what another said or where the protagonists changed their stories many times over, which uh, Jung did a very great deal and Freud to some extent. Excuse me. I didn't gain access to a private archive of family letters in Geneva, which are mainly in Russian. There's a long-standing dispute over this archive, but when it's finally opened, someone will be able to write a fuller version of her relationship with her family than I was able to. I say a little bit about the broigas, uh, if you'll excuse the English expression, about the long-running dispute in the in the introduction to the book. There were some delightful moments in the process of writing. I tracked down the current custodian of the Spielrein copyrights, a mathematician in New York called Vladimir Spielrein. I wrote to him, offering my modest advance in exchange for permission to quote from his great-aunt Sabina, he wrote back at once to say I could use as much as I like if I buy him a drink next time in New York so <laughs> I think I owe him several maybe even the fare over here to have a drink with us later later tonight I'll say more about that later later on I met the eminent russian historian alexander etkin to talk about <coughs> spielrein's later years and he <coughs> offered to put me in touch with a man in london who had been close to spielrein's stepdaughter nina When he told me the man's name, it turned out to be somebody I already knew. And I'm delighted to welcome Sasha Zhuravlyov, wherever you are, Sasha, with his wife Katya here this evening, giving us an almost direct link with the the family. Um, So that was an extraordinary coincidence. I hadn't set out to write a revisionist version of Spielwein's life, but I not only found that recent historians had debunked different parts of the myth, but there were far more that I needed to challenge myself. So here is the story that emerged. The early part may be familiar to you. Most of the rest almost certainly will not be. Spielrein was born in eighteen eighty five into a wealthy Jewish family in Rostov in Don Don in southern Russia. Her mother if I can find the pointer, that's Eva there, had a distinguished rabbinic background. Her father, Nikolai, was a brilliant polymath from Warsaw who'd made a fortune in agricultural uh, trade. Sabina was the eldest of five children. That's Sabina there. Uh, she had three brothers: uh, Jacob or Yasha, uh, Isaac or Sanya, and sorry, that's Isaac there. I beg your pardon. And em, uh, Emil or, or Emil uh, was the youngest. Um, that is a cousin. And um, the, this, these are this is an uncle and probably two aunts. Uh, later on, she had a uh, a little sister, Emilia, and that's her there, a uh, little older with uh, with her little sister as well, and her mother. Um, from her very early years, Sabina had a strong sense of having to fulfil a higher calling, a mission, and it was something that stayed with her throughout her life. She had an inner voice or guardian angel with whom she would commune about this. Her parents' marriage was turbulent. Both her parents, as well as her brothers, were violent towards her. There's a strong suggestion that her father's violence had a sexual aspect to it. From around the age of three, she had symptoms that we'd now undoubtedly identify as pointing towards possible sexual abuse. These included compulsively masturbating to fantasies of being punished. Sabina was a brilliant child. She was fluent in three languages by her teens and excelled in science and music. However... When she was 16, a little after this photo was taken, her little sister Emilia died suddenly of typhoid and Sabina suffered what we would now see as a hysterical bereavement reaction. Ticks, grimaces, laughing and crying. However awful Cronenberg's movie was in many respects, Keira Knightley's portrayal of her in that hysterical state was based on the hospital notes and is probably pretty accurate. Her family might have taken her to see Jeanne in Paris or Freud in Vienna, but instead they ended up at the University Hospital in Zurich. Its director was a man named Eugen Bloiler, who was one of the first people to believe mental hospitals should be therapeutic communities. The activities in the hospital included not only rest, but gardening, drama, music, and scientific study. One of his assistant physicians was Carl Jung, who was still working on his doctoral dissertation on word association tests. He hadn't met Freud at that stage, although he'd read a few of his works. Sabina began to calm down straight away. It's actually recorded on the second day. She was already calming down, separated from her family. Within a few weeks, she'd improved so much that she was able to apply for medical school in Zurich with Bloyler's support. Once she'd applied for medical school, Jung encouraged her to join him in the hospital laboratory to do word association tests on other patients. Jung later claimed in a letter to Freud that he'd analysed her while she was in hospital using Freud's own method. A close reading of the notes does not support this claim. He took her psychiatric history over the first five days of her admission in a fairly formal and conventional way, but he then went on leave. He recorded no more significant conversations for two months and she was already better by then. It was only after she'd applied for medical school and was working with him in the lab that he recorded around seven further conversations with her. He doesn't describe the method in these conversations, but it's clear that it didn't include free association or dream analysis, the two methods most associated with Freud and psychoanalysis. During these seven conversations, she largely repeated things she'd already disclosed when he took her initial psychiatric history. Several historians have also pointed out how he avoided exploring abuse in the family. Spielrein spoke a number of times during her admission about someone or something crawling down her back or intruding on her. Bloiler's entries indicate that he believed she was at risk from her father and possibly her brothers. There's correspondence where he requests and at times insists that her family should stay away from her. He doesn't mention any treatment by Jung. Overall, the notes give the impression that Bloyler's interventions were the main influences that helped Spielwein get better, something I explore in detail in the book. There's an independent account of Jung's treatment of Spielwein written by another Russian medical student called Feiger Berg, who was an intern at the time and became a friend of Spielwein's. Berg's account doesn't sound at all like Freud's method. It sounds entirely like Jung's method. Jung treated the patient. When the treatment began, he asked her to pay attention with associations in the association test. In this way, he found out the patient's complexes and persuaded her to talk about them. Why on earth should Jung later claim that he used Freud's method on Spielrein when he didn't? In fact, Jung wrote about a dozen different accounts of Spielrein's case over a period of 50 years. Each of them has discrepancies from the other. He often appears to be slanting his accounts towards the needs of the situation, including flattering Freud during the years of their close friendship. Most previous accounts of Jung's treatment have started by accepting his claim, but without examining the hospital notes carefully or even at all. Spielwein entered medical school in the spring of 1905 in Zurich. During her first couple of years there, she carried on assisting Jung in the laboratory and attended his lectures. Her diaries are full of gushing tributes to him. It's clear she had a massive crush on him, but this reads more like hero worship than erotic fantasies. She wrote him long letters about love, socialism and other matters. He occasionally seems to have replied, although we don't have his letters from those years. There's a lot of wishful thinking in Spielrein's diaries that she meant a great deal to him, but there's nothing from his side at all to support this. At the time, he was involved in other matters, including his marriage, having children, his growing friendship with Freud, his university career, and his first two or three extramarital affairs. John Kerr's argument that Spielrein inspired Jung with the idea of the anima is entirely fanciful. It's based on something Jung said 50 years later about a talented psychopath with no identifying details. Kerr's reconstruction of her therapy with Jung while she was at medical school is also groundless. Her diaries make this entirely clear. She didn't want therapy, ask for it or pay for it. Instead, during their informal encounters in the laboratory or socially, he started to experiment on her by offering interpretations for her crush. She detested this and begged him to stop. She couldn't have made him, made this clearer. This is what she later wrote to Freud. I begged him many times not to provoke my ambitia with various probings. In the end, the unavoidable happened. It reached the point where he could no longer stand it and wanted poetry. Poetry was the euphemism for poetry. (laughs) Many similar comments in her diaries and letters make it clear that Jung's attempted analysis of her was imposed against her will. It led to precisely the consequence she feared. Instead of curing her of an infatuation with him, it led to him developing one with her, although on his side it was fairly brief. Almost his first surviving letter, this is actually his second in fact, the first is rather nasty, uh, the second one goes like this. My dear friend, I have to let you know what a lovely impression you made on me today. You cannot believe how much it means to me to hope that I can love a person that I don't have to condemn, and who does not condemn herself to suffocate in the banality of habit? Their affair was never exclusive on his side, and it lasted around five months. There are four letters from 1908 where Jung expresses love for Spielrein, but each is slightly less wholehearted than the previous one. In December, his emotions changed, and he confessed this wasn't the first time he'd had this experience. "'My dear, I regret so much. I regret my weakness and curse the fate that is threatening me.' When love for a lady awakens in me, my first feeling is of regret, of pity for the poor woman who dreams of eternal faithfulness and other impossibilities and is destined for a painful awakening from all these dreams. At this point, something even more dramatic happened. Jung's wife Emma wrote an anonymous letter to Spielheim's mother who threatened to shop him to his boss, Bloiler. Jung refused to meet with Spielein as a friend anymore. She confronted him and assaulted him with a letter knife. Jung resigned from the hospital saying he wanted to concentrate on his research. He started to fire off desperate letters to Freud, calling her a liar and then blaming her for being a ruthless seductress. His words... Jung and Freud then entered into a conspiracy to neutralise Spielrein. It's already well known and rather too convoluted to do justice to here, although I devote two chapters to it in my book. Freud comes out of the episode woefully and Jung appallingly. Spielrein, I should say, and her mother and Emma Jung uh, r- 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 really, r- really uh, come off, come off a very, in a very dignified way. Uh, Jung and Freud lied flagrantly to each other as well as to Spielrein, and in the words of, their, of the German biographer Sabine Richebecher, a shabby game unfolds in which out of calculating power politics and in an endeavour to avoid any public scandal around psychoanalysis Freud and Jung together draw up a design to checkmate the Queen she is led up the garden path pathologized, appeased Spielrein forgave both of them, but not without having a dig at them for their duplicity. Here is her writing to Freud with amazing directness. If only he was able to be honest with himself, if he was really able to be honest with you, I would then be so happy. You are cunning too, Professor. You would rather spare yourself an unpleasant moment. Isn't that correct? even the great Freud cannot always ignore his own weaknesses. I love the quotation marks around Freud, as if she is separating off the famous Freud from the Freud with feet of clay. Spielrein resumed occasional erotic encounters with Jung, but as her diaries reveal, all her friends took the view that he was a good-for-nothing. Uh, again, a, a direct quote from one of her friends. In the end, she convinced herself That he was a Don Juan, another direct quote from her. When she qualified as a doctor in early 1911, she left Zurich for good and of her own accord. She only ever saw him once more during the following years. She remained grateful to him. His care for her as a psychiatrist had played a part in her recovery. Her passion for him had kept her going through medical school. Even if his friendship had been intrusive and their affair was brief, It gave her the first experience of tender physical contact, although, in spite of Cronenberg, probably not full sex and certainly not spanking. 1911 marked a turning point in her life. She met Freud and established a friendship with him. She embarked on a psychiatric career which included publication of 37 papers, She married an Orthodox Jew from Rostov a doctor called Pavel Sheftel. It wasn't a happy marriage and when the First World War broke out her husband returned to Russia leaving her with her baby daughter Renata It was a decade before they were reunited If the first half of her life is fascinating because of its personal dramas the second half is so because of her phenomenal intellectual output and I'm now going to address that her first creative period was when, from when she qualified in nineteen eleven until the early part of World War I. For her medical school dissertation, she wrote, as I explained, the first extended study of schizophrenic speech and its internal logic. Her dissertation was both the first to be accepted for a doctorate using a psychoanalytic approach, and the first doctorate ever to be published in the psychoanalytic journal next to papers by Freud, Ferenczi, Otto Rank, Oscar Pfister and Bloyler. It was to be another 50 years before psychiatrists like R.D. Lang started to look at the speech of psychotic people as being an important and intelligible form of communication, as she did. The following year, she wrote two more significant papers. One was an article on childhood fantasies about pregnancy and childbirth, based on her own memory of her childhood and recent work she'd done with two small children. The other was the paper that struck me as so astonishing when I first set out on this journey. Destruction as the cause of coming into being. She delivered this to the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society in 1912 when she was 27. It isn't an easy work to read. She was still working through her ideas, and she tries to show off her erudition rather too much, but its drift is clear. She proposed that as human beings we're all caught up in a tension between two opposite instincts, the instinct to survive as an individual and the instinct to reproduce, sex versus survival. She argued that the reproductive instinct has destructive aspects to it as well. We long for a conception, but this requires some destruction physically and psychologically of what has gone before, and this leads to resistance and anxiety, particularly in women. She argued against Freud's idea that the sole pursuit of pleasure underlies all our actions, proposing instead that only the reproductive drive and adequately explain all our instincts. I must dogmatically defend, she says, attacking Freud in this paper, or at least Freud's pleasure principle. I must dogmatically defend the viewpoint that the personal psyche is governed by unconscious impulses uh, that lie deeper, and in their demands are unconcerned with our feeling the actions. Pleasure is simply, merely, the affirmative reaction of the ego to these demands arising from the depths. In other words, the conscious reason we desire sex is obviously out of pleasure, but the unconscious reason is the imperative to have descendants. Our feelings represent the degree of success with which we're balancing opportunities and threats to our survival and our continuation. This has become a highly respectable view in modern biology and in neuroscience. Later on, she expanded on this in a letter to Jung, where she wrote about the way children seek attachment with parental figures in the interests of their survival and ultimately of their reproduction. Tranquility, freedom of movement, play with other children, favourite foods, everything is sacrificed, In return for more attention from those whose love one desires. To express my personal opinion, I would include this instinct for self-preservation in the instinct for preservation of the species. What she says here is impeccable in the terms of the way attachment theorists and the wider evolutionary community now understand how negative behavior may actually contribute to survival and the prospects of having descendants. And Graham has written a considerable amount about this in his uh, his recent book, The Good Life. Freud and Jung were scornful about what she said, quite simply because she based it on biology. "'What troubles me most,' said Freud, "'is that Fräulein Spielwein wants to subordinate "'the psychological material to biological considerations.' This dependency is no more acceptable than a dependence on philosophy, physiology, or brain anatomy. Psychoanalyza farada Psychoanalysis will get on very nicely by itself. Thank you very much. Jung replied, they were getting on pretty well at the time. I know, of course, that spiorine operates too much with biology but she didn't learn that from me. (laughs) It is homegrown. I'm not sure whether it's the same letter where he describes her as ending in a fish. Spielwein realised that human beings have to make fundamental choices between procreation and conserving their energy for survival. The desire for sex is accompanied by fear of its many risks, particularly for women. A loss of physical identity uh, through pregnancy and a loss of psychological identity through marriage and motherhood, as well as the risks of violence, abuse, and rejection, as Spielrein knew. She also made an explicit claim, the first one ever, that variations in sexual desire, including her own masochism, could be seen as understandable strategies for meeting reproductive ends in certain circumstances, an extraordinary insight for her time and one that's only begun to return probably in the last 10 or 15 years in evolutionary thinking. There were some serious flaws in Spielwein's arguments and I address these in my book, but she located some essential truths that now lie at the heart of evolutionary studies. She also understood that talking therapies would make no sense outside its own small band of followers, unless it fitted a theory that had universal acceptance in the scientific world. In letters to Jung later, she tried to demonstrate how the theory of evolution could bring together Freud's understanding of the sex drive, Jung's view of the collective unconscious, and Adler's concept of the will to power. It's a breathtaking vision, and I believe it holds together well. It was also typical of her desire to build bridges rather than join factions. There is nothing in her destruction paper that resembles Freud's death instinct. She wrote explicitly the destructive aspect of the reproductive instinct, not an instinct towards destruction in its own right. Around the beginning of the First World War, Spielwein published a further ten papers At least two more explored entirely original territory. A paper on the mother-in-law was the first to take a feminist perspective on family relationships and the wider social influence on them. She's tremendously sympathetic to mothers-in-law, including her own. An article she published on the treatment of a boy's phobia about monkeys was almost certainly the first case report of a child being treated for an emotional problem through talking and the use of associations. In this, she was at least a decade ahead of Anna Freud and Melanie Klein. The second period of immense creativity for her took place after the First World War when she moved to Geneva and to the Rousseau Institute to join the founders of child psychology, including Clapared and Beauvais. The young Jean Piaget joined their team afterwards and she took him on as a patient for a training analysis. She also produced around 19 further papers in less than three years. These included a series of articles making links across psychoanalysis, child development and linguistics. They include a magnificent paper on the origin of the words mama and papa. Here is a wonderful quotation from it. Like no other, the act of sucking is fundamental to the most important of the child's life experiences. Here it learns the bliss of knowing its feelings of hunger satisfied, but it also learns that this bliss has an end and has to be won again. The infant has its first experience that there is an external world. Its contact with the mother's body plays a part in this by offering resistance to the movements of the tiny mouth. And finally, the little creature learns that there is refuge in this external world which is attractive not only because its hunger is satisfied there but because it's warm, soft and safe from all dangers. If we have once felt in our lives, let this moment linger, it is so beautiful. It was surely at this time. Here the child learns for the first time to love in the wider sense of the word That is to perceive contact with another being, independent of nourishment, as the highest bliss. Isn't it extraordinary that this isn't one of the best-known passages in the history of the psychological therapies? I find it so. During this time, Spielwein was one of the pioneers of observational research into how children speak, doing so many years before Piaget followed her example with his children. A short paper written during the same period shows she's likely to have been the first person to use play therapy with children as well. For her third period of great creativity, Spielrein returned to Russia, immediately becoming the most experienced psychoanalyst in Moscow with a chair in child psychology. She joined the staff of the world's first psychoanalytic kindergarten. Stalin's son, Vasily, Was one of her charges there. She influenced the young Alexandra Luria and Lev Vygotsky, who joined shortly afterwards, just as Piaget had done at the Rousseau Institute. Later on, the two men achieved fame for the ways they combined objective and subjective approaches to psychology in the manner she had introduced. Within a year or so of joining the kindergarten, Spielrein got caught up in a dispute between Stalin and Trotsky about its future and finally returned to Rostov. Life must have been unrecognizably different. Her mother had died three years earlier, having not seen her for a decade. Her husband, Pavel, was in a relationship with another woman, Olga Snetkova, That's Olga uh, in, in middle age in the back. And she and Pavel had had a daughter called uh, a, uh, called Nina, and that's Nina Snetkova in the front. I'm terribly grateful to Sasha for uh, providing me with this and, and some other photos of Nina. Um, Pavel returned almost at once to live with Sabina and Renata, who was now 13. Sabina's father had lost most of his wealth under communism, but threw himself into Soviet causes, including mass literacy. Spielrein's brothers had each become immensely distinguished scientists. That is uh, Isaac on the left, Jan on the right, and Emil down below. Isaac was one of the world's leading industrial psychologists, one of the founders of the discipline. A year after Sabina's return, she and Pavel had a second daughter, Eva, and both their girls developed into talented musicians. Spielwein worked in the new field of pedology, a synthesis of medical paediatrics, child psychology and developmental studies. She created an adaptation of psychoanalytic methods to address the circumstances of the Soviet Union, and continued with observational research into the late 1920s. She spoke about this publicly in 1929, when psychoanalysis had virtually been banned by Stalin. She continued to work until shortly before the German invasion of Western Russia. In June 1942, the German army finally occupied Rostov-on-Don. Spielrein and her two daughters, Renata and Eva, was shot by a Nazi death squad along with almost the entire Jewish population of the city. Sabina Spielrein left a huge legacy behind her, and her terrible death along with her daughters makes it even more important to rediscover it. We have to ask the question, how did it ever happen that the real Sabina was forgotten and came to be displaced by the trashy image of a young woman being deflowered and spanked in a Hollywood movie. My view is that two of the likely explanations are straightforward and the other two are not. The straightforward explanations are that she returned to the Soviet Union in the early 1920s and that she died there in the Holocaust. As a Russian, she always represented a culture that was poorly understood and denigrated in the West. It's interesting, Russian historians have pointed out that there are as many anti-Russian stereotypes in Freud and Jung's writing as there are anti-Semitic stereotypes in, in Jung's. After her return, it was literally, she was literally inaccessible. Her murder in 1942 meant that she never lived to see opportunities for contact with former colleagues in the West. What if she had moved to London? I think it's unlikely that she would have been written out of history in the way that she she had. I think the less straightforward reasons for forgetting or undervaluing her are to do with her own beliefs. These include her refusal to join factions or identify herself with any discipline and her passion for science. She lived in an age where people who were purists or charismatic leaders like Freud, Jung or Piaget earned huge reputations. Those who were more interested in making peace and building bridges were undervalued, pathologized, demoted into walk-on parts in the lives of their gurus. As people here will know, respect between different schools of thought and disciplines is becoming more common. People at the Tavistock and the Anna Freud Center do actually now talk to each other. Although this rapprochement is not yet strong enough. Acknowledging Spielrein's position in the early history of psychoanalysis and of how she tried to reconcile its factions would be an important part of that process. The main division that Spielrein tried to resist was the one between the world of psychoanalysis and that of biology. Biology. Hostility between them arose for all kinds of reasons, but a central one was the strong objection that Freud and Jung expressed to anchoring psychoanalysis in biology. Fortunately, that debate too is far less polarised these days. People are beginning to ask the questions that Spielwein was always asking. What is this for? If the unconscious mind exists, if people suffer from hysteria or other mental disorders if they experience the wish for pain? How did such things arise and persist in our history? What is the purpose of infant attachment, child development and language, anxiety, envy, rage, love and healing? Such questions are now becoming the preoccupations of many researchers and an increasing number of therapists. They accept that psychoanalysis cannot be exempt from the principle put forward by another great Russian thinker, Theodosius Dobzhansky. Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Finally, were Spielrein's ideas ignored, suppressed and forgotten because she was a woman? The answer is not straightforward. Women like Anna Freud and Melanie Klein achieved unrivaled reputations. What seems more likely is that Spielwein was marginalised because she always wrote and behaved as a woman. She approached biology and sexuality as someone who was both tempted by desire and afraid of it. She wrote about the family dynamics surrounding mothers-in-law in terms of gender roles. She described child development, language and thought from her own experience of motherhood. The tentative style of much of her writing also goes against the common habit of only displaying certainty. Her behaviour mirrored this as well. Whatever happened between her and her father, she stayed close to him at the end of his life. In spite of Freud's insistence that she should uncover hatred of Jung, she was never disloyal to either man. She carried on trying to get these two stubborn titans of psychoanalysis to resume dialogue, years after there was any prospect of it. She combined the role of lone parent, researcher, writer and clinician when her husband and others were insisting it was cruel for a woman to do so. She didn't demand acknowledgement from others when they took up her ideas. She never knew how to play politics or had the slightest wish to do so. In the end, I believe she did have a higher calling. It was to come up with ideas that were a century ahead of her time. It's a privilege to honour her calling this evening. Thank you. Need the projector off so we can. Yes, can we
0: turn the projector off? Ah. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, John. That was extraordinary, beautifully delivered, and um, extremely stimulating for all of us, I think. Um, I don't think it's just Sabina's dad who was a polymath. I think we've got one sitting here <laughs> as well. And um, this extraordinary woman who's so ahead of her time and I think can stimulate a lot of discussion between us, I think. This person who was a precursor of evolutionary psychology in many ways, child, understand childhood psychoanalysis, attachment theory, extraordinary clinician, extraordinary innovator. Um, and we've really had, this really is a treat, I think, we, uh, from John, to um, extraordinary work of historical, biographical scholarship that's really done psychoanalysis a favour, I think, by reclaiming this person for, for, and her reputation as somebody who should really be one of our heroines. So I'd like to open it up now. To the floor. I think it'll be helpful if people um, say their names very briefly. We've got a roving mic over here. Ivan's kindly going to pass this around, and it'd be helpful if people just briefly say their name. And if you could stick probably to one point, you can either ask questions or make make points if you like. And I suppose should we take two or three and then come back to Johnny? Okay, lovely.
2: That was wonderful. I wanted to ask about Freud because he started in biology, yeah. and as I understood it, as an ignoramus myself, um, he he developed part. He he was born. Psychoanalysis was born partly out of his biological understanding. Yeah.
1: Do you want to say that now, John? I could because it's uh, quite simple. I, I've, I'm afraid I'm going to preface almost everything I say by saying there's an awful lot about that in the book, um, but there genuinely is. Uh, it seems, I mean, Freud was a very good neuroanatomist, neurophysiologist, and he had some basic understanding of the principles of evolution. But he seems to have moved further and further away from understanding evolution or believing that it was important. And I think most people now accept that his view of evolution was, was rather primitive and also heavily uh, I- imbued with L- Lamarckism. Um, and, and I think increasingly he saw psychoanalysis as something that must far as say, it must stand by itself, essentially a hermeneutic art, that it n- not only should it no longer be anchored in biology, but it will be a positive error philosophically for it to be so. So I think he just moved away from it as a brief answer.
0: I have to say, that isn't the case, actually.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't want to have to defend Freud every uh, every corner, but um, his last book, an outline of psychoanalysis, where he's going back to biology, looking at biology, trying to
0: see the difference, and says that wonderful phrase, you know, it's not in psychology but in biology that the gap's there, you know, that he's really trying to make a connection. I think and it's a fair point. Evan. And he any? did read the whole of Darwin before he was 20, mm-hmm. so I, mean, okay, I think we've got right. to we'll, we'll give him to... a bit of credit, I we'll, think. Uh,
1: for, uh, anyway.
0: Fair enough. Well, I think there's, we all agree there's as many Freuds as there are readers of Freud, so yes. um, he did change his mind a few times, thankfully. Um, Sue? So, okay.
3: <laughs> yes. <laughs> fabulous and well, I'm going to get the book so you don't know how to tell me it's in the book <laughs> but totally fascinating and what a brilliant subject um, I think my question is if you obviously know you've got inside this woman what do you think she, how do you think she would want to be remembered what do you think she would want to be known as I do not think she would want to be known as a psychoanalytically trained I psychiatrist right. I yeah. don't think she would do you Yeah. and uh, how hideous that she came to that end and that we couldn't see yeah. where she went with all that talent. But so, is that a reasonable. I'll stop there. But uh, wonderful, yes. thank you. Shall
0: we. Can you say one now. or two more? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Thanks.
4: Uh, have we got any more? No, I got one. Good. I'm, I'm not a fro- uh, psychoanalyst, I'm a historian and journalist, so. Forgive me if I make some ignorant points. Uh, I'm fascinated by this subject, first of all, because I'm interested in Russian history, so I'd like to know more about how Sabina is regarded in Russia today. Huh. If you know anything about that, I'm not sure. I I've read only up to page 90 of the book, right. so yeah. I, don't, I don't know if you do cover it's that, been, that in that the book. Yet to come, uh, yeah. And uh, concerning the uh, question of her work, yes. is there any. Uh, initiative to make it readily available in English in uh, an accessible form, in a book form or online, etc. I think that would be important to people. And uh, finally, about this film, I didn't think it was so bad in terms of how Freud's been represented in movies. If you look at the John Huston movie, which was absolutely terrible, I thought... But I thought Freud came out of the story much better than Jung, of course, and, and not so bad. Actually, he seems to be the hero of the film. I don't know if this is the case. Or that's the way it came across yeah. to me. And I think I'll stop there, because I'm starting to Thank, Thank you.
1: there Sue's point, first of all, how would she like to be remembered? I think she'd like to be remembered as a, as, a, as a bridge builder, as somebody who was eclectic, as somebody who crossed lots of worlds and couldn't see why all these worlds had split off and become Fragmented from each other. That's the, that's the simple answer. USSR, they're just beginning to rediscover her, but I think uh, as I wrote and I started to network with people, I discovered people are coming out all over the world and, and developing an interest in her. And the USSR is one place, but also there are quite a few people in America working on translations of her works for hopefully a published version in two or three years of her. Papers. Um, she definitely, I mean, she, uh, over the years, she got further and further away from Jung and closer and closer to Freud, there's no doubt about it, that she she formed a very warm friendship with Freud uh, as she distanced herself from Jung. So the quality of that relationship was reasonably well portrayed in the movie. Take yeah. Sue's point.
0: Uh, Sue's, Sue's point about um, how she'd like to be remembered.
1: Yes, I did. I, uh, yeah, reason, as, yeah, as a big of
2: Thank you for reawakening my interest in psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Um, my questions about your, 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 your final point about the four theories about why this woman, mm. this amazing woman, was so completely invisible. Um, so two questions associated with it. One was, how many chapters did you devote to each of the theories? Did, did you devote quite a lot of discussion to the feminist theory? And did you, did you compare, I mean, how, how did, did you have your comparators of other invisible women of the time? Or how, how did you, did what conclusion did you come to?
1: Okay, thanks, Bobby. Yeah.
0: Anyone else? Well, there's one over here at the back. One here.
2: Can I just ask something about um, uh, Sabina? And do you know if um, uh, she in the end had the analysis herself? because there is this assumption that she was analysed by Jung, and we know that she was a member of the Freud Seminar and uh, analysed Pierre, and uh, did a lot of child analysis, but uh, do you know anything about that? Is it documented at all?
0: Yeah, thank you. There's one at the back, on the right. James, as we were at the Anna Freud Centre, perhaps you could... Tell us what Anna Freud made of um, uh, Sabina, um, because they must have been, I imagine, almost not quite contemporaries, but um, there must have been. They, they, she would have known of her work, and I wondered whether or not, when Anna was ever moved to England, whether or not she did anything to promote or publicise her work in any way
1: yes i mean bobby 's question first uh um, how much do I look at the various hypotheses about her um, why, why she was forgotten, denigrated, etc. Um, actually, I only do so very briefly. I, I, I just touched on it in the last chapter where I suggest various reasons, but I don't go into it in any depth. And I think maybe that's work for the future, and particularly perhaps for feminist historians. I suspect there's an awful lot of Sabina Spielrein's out there that we don't know about. I suspect that going through the history of psychoanalysis and all the psychological therapists, not to mention all the sciences, one would find similar figures. Rosalind Franklin is an obvious one who comes to mind in the history of DNA, and others who have been written out of history. But I don't, I don't go into it in, in as much detail mm-hmm. as, as I would have liked to. Katya's um, uh, question, did she have an analysis? No, she never had any formal analysis. She had bits and pieces. I mean, she had the rather, uh, you know, strange... Uh, consultations with Jung where he started with word association and then persuaded her to talk about the complexes that came out. Uh, She then had her wild analysis with him which was unwanted. She then did have a few consultations with Freud in Vienna in 1912 where she had what he described to Jung as some intimate discussions uh, with Freud but we don't know how many or how long they were for. I suspect most of her analysis was self-analysis and you can actually read many of her diaries and, and letter drafts. She wrote, lo- she wrote long letter drafts which she never sent and many of those actually read like self-analysis. Um, And James's question about Anna Freud, so far as I'm aware they only met once, or at least they were only present in the same room once, and that was at a conference in The Hague where... Spiellein presented her paper on the origins of the world words Mama and Papa and both Anna Freud and Melanie Klein were certainly there because they were all there together in, a, in the same photo as Sabina Spiellein. but there's no record of whether they actually spoke to each other or whether Anna Freud explicitly took up some of the ideas uh, that, that I quoted there which actually read rather more like Melanie Klein but, but we don't know whether, whether they actually ever conversed Sorry? <laughs> 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 Son just yes for yes, yes, my first novel. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay.
0: Yes no. You are indeed, I think. Yes.
2: Uh, thank you very much for an absolutely fantastic presentation and undoubtedly book. Any chance to recover her personal
1: letters? Uh, I think we're getting closer and closer to that. Um, I I need to be a bit diplomatic here but my my contacts with the family and with other uh, uh, Spielwein scholars have led me to believe that that there, there is now a reasonable chance that they will be brought together and deposited in some kind of uh, institutional archive. Uh, but there was an attempt about ten years ago which failed because of the dispute between the various parties who, who claim ownership to it. So, But I'm, I'm thinking it's getting closer. I'm hugely hoping the book will make a contribution to that by by, revi- by reviving interest. Sorry? Where
4: are they?
1: Uh, the, the archive is in Geneva, and it's actually in the possession of the descendants of her boss, in Geneva, when she left uh, for Russia, she left them in the basement of the place where she worked. When she never returned, they were amalgamated with her boss's archive, and the family ever since then have said, "I'm sorry, it's part of our family archive." And the family, the the descendants of the Spielmann family, have never they've succeeded in getting back the copyright. They've never succeeded in getting back the uh, the, the, the the possession of the archive so that's that's the that's the thing. what is interesting is that when she applied for a visa to go back from geneva to moscow she applied for a return visa and she actually wrote on her application under no circumstances do i wish to stay in russia kind false do I wish to stay in Russia? And she also got her boss, Bovey, I think it was Bovey yeah, at the time, she got her boss to write a testimonial to say, it's OK, she will always have a job here when she comes back. So it's a kind of cut-and-dried case that she did intend to come back to Geneva. She intended her visit to Russia to be a short one. She then got drawn into the politics in Moscow. She then got drawn to Rostov to be reunited with her husband. Stalin then took over and there was absolutely no chance of her coming back again but I I personally I cannot imagine remotely that she wished her papers to be amalgamated with her boss's archive, I mean, which of us would want our boss to own our childhood diaries (laughs) (laughs) Um,
2: this is about her her arts education yes because that paper that caused you epiphany—it's yeah. the title of it—is practically a straight quote from Heraclitus: Destructus, "Destruction as the cause of coming into being." And I just wonder how much—I don't know—I yes. don't know what the, edu- what, what the state of, of knowledge of the pre-Socratics was at that time in, in
1: Geneva. But it's uh, right. th- the, whole, the whole classical stuff. And philosophical stuff okay. is really interesting. Ruth, she, she had read everything. I mean, the paper is astonishing. I mean, uh, Anaxagoras is in there. Um, so are the myths of the Australian aboriginals. So is tons of Nietzsche. So is... I mean, she doesn't refer to Schopenhauer, but the whole paper is imbued with Schopenhauer. Darwin is... Ev- I mean, she was, ju- she was a polymath. I mean, her father was a polymath. She was even more of a polymath. Um, in terms of music, uh, in terms of art, she actually tried to be, she became a composer for a while during the Second World War when she wasn't Patience, she took composition letters and started to write she was a gifted pianist I mean, she was an utterly phenomenal woman so the chances that she did not know Heraclitus of extremely remote, I would say. <laughs> 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 I wasn't aware, that, the, the, but it may well have been a direct quote. It no, is, it's, no it's, a, it's
2: a fragment. That fine,
1: okay, yeah. she may well have known. Uh, yes, one of the very... Mov- um, my wife was just asking if I'd say something about her descendants. Um not not my wife's descendants (laughs) who are here in the room (laughs) 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 but uh, Spielein's descendants um but uh, during the process of writing, I made contact, firstly, as I said, with Vladimir Spiellein, who's her great-nephew. And then Vladimir put me in touch with a cousin in Canada called Katie Zeidman. And <coughs> Vladimir and uh, Katie between them helped me to compile what I believe is the first ever family tree of all Spielrein's brothers' descendants. Obviously, her two own daughters did not survive, but descendants of her two brothers did survive. Um, and there is a complete family tree at the end of my book, and um, there are altogether now, I believe, 14 living descendants of her brothers, including uh, Oleg, uh, his his surname escapes me for a moment, but it's in the book. He, He is in his 80s, and he actually would have met Sabina. Sabina would have been his aunt and he would have, he would have met him, <coughs> and also met Nikolai who was his, his grandfather. Um, so it's wonderful to discover. Lo- most of the writing about Spielein simply implies there's nobody left. You know, there isn't a family. There's a typical sort of post-Holocaust uh, amnesia uh, 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 and creating another myth that actually uh, there's nobody to commemorate her, there's nobody who thinks about her. Actually the family think about her a great deal, particularly Katie, um, yes, Sue again, and then it's I got. To, just I, it's
3: uh, just reminded me. Um, I've seen the film. You don't, it, uh, I can't associate it with what you've been talking mm, about. No, but she certainly had something. Yes. What do What do you really think was going on? Because. If she had contact with Bloiler, Bloiler was one of the earliest people to try and formulate a diag- how to diagnose schizophrenia. Indeed, yes. Didn't he? He was yes. one of those early people with yeah. uh, Schneider. So she will have had um, a psychiatric assessment. Yeah. Um, <coughs> was she developing? I mean, obviously she wasn't developing a psychotic illness because she no, went on indeed. not to be psychotic. What I do you think, think was happening?
1: I, just, I think she had a straightforward case of classical hysteria. I mean, she was, she, she was having a hysterical reaction in response to the kind of appalling stresses at home, which included her bereavement, physical abuse, possible sex abuse, everything else that was going on. And like so many young women of that era, this was her parachute. You know, this hysteria was her, her ticket to escape. And it was literally a ticket to escape. It was an escape for a family. it was an escape for Switzerland. As hysteria so often is, it was, it was an incredibly effective solution. It was sort of the best option available for her as a, as, as a disorder. Uh, one or two people thought she was psychotic. There was a doctor in <coughs> Zurich who the doctor who wrote the admission letter thought she was psychotic. Uh, Caro Tanuto, who never saw the hospital notes and wrote his book, was absolutely convinced she was schizophrenic, but there's no evidence for it at all. Well,
3: it's not
1: not what the history shows. No, it's not what the history shows at all. Uh, Yes, could I... I I, I don't want to get into sort of... uh, competitive point scoring. But on, on the point of evolution, um, w- w- one of the things I did as a, as a kind of offshoot of writing this book is I actually was commissioned to write a review of Freud's approach to evolutionary theory and modern evolutionary views of sex and sexuality and, and comparing the two. and it, It's actually going to appear in March in Psychoanalytic Inquiry in a themed edition on psychoanalysis. and evolution uh, and the reference is in the book I just managed to get the reference to it in time so it is in the bibliography uh, for you know for, for 2015 so if anybody wants to follow that particular strand and I agree with, with, with Graham there are as many Freuds as there are readers of Freud but I try and do as scrupulous like, an analysis as I can of what Freud thought about evolution and what evolutionists think about Freud um, so you can read it all there
0: Interest, do you think that um, part of the resistance to her ideas is, the, is a hangover from the 70s and 80s and that, uh, of a suspicion of neurobiological absolutely, approaches, and evolutionary approaches yeah, and yeah. biological approaches, yeah. and attachment as well, which was seen yeah. as very behavioural. And now we're yeah. in a very exciting time with yeah, I think this rapprochement reprashm- right. reprashm- yes. between these ideas.
1: Yes. I mean... Graham, you all know you, you, Graham and I are involved in an in, in an evo psychotherapy seminar group which meets monthly at the Tavistock where we discuss these things and and some of the time we're still kind of gobsmacked by the amount of resistance there is to from psychoanalysts analytic psychotherapists, systemic family therapists from everyone to thinking seriously about evolution and the quite sort of primitive stereotypes that they often have about evolutionary theory and evolutionary thinking, whole loads of stuff about genetic determinism and, star, you know, sociobiology, stuff that evolutionists haven't believed in for 30 years. So they're still attacking a whole load of Aunt Sallys. And certainly when I gave a presentation about this a couple of years ago at the Tavistock, and you know, the one or two absolutely die-hard people who were saying, you know, like Freud, uh, you know, to anchor psychoanalysis in biology would be utter betrayal. But at other times we're thinking, well, we couldn't be working in more exciting times Mm -hmm. because so much dialogue is now going on. They are talking to each other.
0: Absolutely. Um, Any more questions? We can stop any time from quarter past, but if people have got things they would like to say... Instead, in terms of timing, I did notice that John did do almost exactly. Everything. I know, yeah, I
1: <laughs> knew you'd say. You'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget to mention the pub before people. I will there.
0: mention the pub and something else. I'm going to mention. Oh, yeah. Right. Any, any further thoughts or questions or? Actually, I can't, I can't go on. No, go ahead. <laughs> <in there. laughs>
2: the Origin of Species, as you know, went through lots of editions, but yeah. in the first edition, oh, as I'm sure you know. I'm sure everybody knows this, the only mention to m- what he called man is psychology will now be based on a different Absolutely. basis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Darwin himself saw it's in the
1: possibilities the, yeah. of it's in the book. psychology. <laughs> Sorry to keep saying, it's in it's the book. In the book. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is such an important quotation because I think she knew her Darwin well enough that she knew totally what she was doing. I think she knew she was trying to fulfil that prophecy, you know, which went so horribly awry with George Romanes and Kraft Ebbing and people coming up with the most lunatic ideas about how to link evolution and psychology. I think she got it, and I think she knew what she was doing.
0: Somebody in the middle on the left here.
2: Hi, John. Um, uh, it was really stunning. Hello, um, Mary. <laughs> your presentation. I'm. I'm still. Unfortunately, every time I hear the word, I see Kira Knightley, which is yeah. just d- destroying my um, mental status at the moment. Because I also think of Bendit like Beckham, and I just get it all mixed <laughs> up. Did you talk a- at all to the makers of the film, and have they shown any interest no. in a conversation with you?
1: No. I, I did uh, send through her agent, I did send Kira a copy, but alas, I have had no response. <laughs> um, I, think, I think we may have even sent Cronenberg a copy. And uh, I, I, Andrew uh, for, uh, Andrew Lockett from Duckworth, was at the back, I think may, may have tried to use some of their images for, for promoting the book, but I think with no success, um, so, uh, probably just as well. Um, but, uh, no, we, there hasn't really been much communication. My guess would be that he moved on. I mean, this was, he made the film three, four years ago now, and I, my guess is he wouldn't be that interested, and she might not be either, but I don't know.
2: Do you think anyone else would be? Op- Making a proper film about her?
1: Uh, funnily enough, there are three or four previous documentaries about her, uh, and, and, and some of them are good. Um, there, is, there is one uh, by uh, a Hungarian woman called Eva Marton, who uh, now lives in Sweden, and there's a, there's a halfway decent documentary by her from about 2002 called My Name is Sabina Spiellein. Uh, and it's worth getting a hold of. Uh, so, And yes, I'm sure people will make more. It is the kind of story that I think people can keep revisiting. be wonderful if they were to do one you know, based on this. Mm, absolutely.
4: Can I, can I ask what is part what of the play, if you saw it, the you know, Christian Hampton
1: play? Uh, I, I never saw it, I read yeah, it. Tickets. Oh, I never saw it, but I did <laughs> read it. And, um, well, it's terribly close to the movie. I mean, the, the movie, movie was derived, the movies, he wrote this, this, the. Uh, he rewrote his play for the yeah. uh, for the, uh, what do you call it the the script yeah, the screenplay play. screenplay, screenplay. Um, yeah so that was well, his as well. A different
4: actors uh, I think it was uh, a yeah. John wasn't it yeah but yeah
0: on the stage yeah mm-hmm. we have got yeah. should we take a couple more and then okay
3: thank you John. Uh,
2: if you could bring Sabina Spielrein into the room now... Yes. What are the questions you'd like to
1: ask her? <laughs> <laughs> Helen. <laughs> There's
0: people here who know John too well.
1: <laughs> you, you wouldn't guess that Helen and I have worked together as family therapists for <laughs> more, than a, more than a decade. What are the questions I'd like to ask her? Uh, I'd like to ask her um, where... Where she eventually got to in her evolutionary thinking, because she stopped writing about it in about 1918 when she started to work on child development and language. Uh, I have no doubt that she went on thinking about it, but she didn't write any more about it. I'd also, I mean, the 64 million dollar question: How did you use this with your patients?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Did you find ways that it actually helped with therapy? And how should we? How do you think we should now? be using it but Helen I can't resist asking what would you like to
0: ask (laughs) Touche you don't have to answer (laughs)
1: Uh,
0: there's a question over here while we wait did you want to say anything to that no No, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah my name's thank you very much that was very interesting indeed but as you say that she was largely forgotten, misrepresented, what do you think her legacy was
1: or is? Well, I think people are going to rediscover her legacy now. I think the... I I hope my book will be a turning point because it's the first one to do a whole survey of all her ideas as well as her life. The the German novel, I have to say, is extremely good, but it is almost entirely about her life, and it is minutely detailed about her life. But I think uh, my book reviews all the ideas for the first time, but I think the real turning point is going to be when this group of women in America arrange for the translation to English of all her papers. At the moment, they're only available in German, but they're also only available on the web and those facsimiles I mean I showed that facsimile of the opening page, they all look like that and you can get them, I mean they're there you can download them laboriously page by page and read them Um, but I think the real turning point will be when you can go down to Karnak's and for 25 quid get the complete writings in English of Sabina Spielwein and I think people will just go wow and will start to to, to make her into a different person and to extract her really important ideas.
0: Okay, so it's still to be in on that. I
1: think so, yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Okay, have we got any more questions or should we round it up there? We've got one more over here. Yeah. Good, okay.
2: Hi, thank you very much for the very nice talk. I was very impressed and... Yeah. Very interesting talk. I'm a psychiatrist visiting from California. Just Can you make uh, any comments about a role of cocaine in Freudian theory and Freudian life?
1: No. <laughs> but he might be able to. Yes. <laughs>
0: slightly off subject. <laughs> off subject. Really Very interesting. I, 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 <laughs> oh, well, we have had two talks
1: on that. Yes. On that. David Cohen, isn't it, or something? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I, I can't think of many subjects about which I know less.
0: <laughs>
1: but my wife probably can.
0: <laughs> yes, So I think we're getting near the announcement of going down the pub. But um, have we got any final questions? One more question, maybe? Or co- uh, yeah, we're definitely going to hear that from John in a moment. I think before we get to that, let's just round up by. By, first of all, remembering the key catchphrase of the night, it's in the book. So, out there and buy it, I think, afterwards. Um, you're going
1: to sign copies, John? I'm happy to do some signings. I'm going to Excellent. perch myself in the little room by the door, and if anybody wants to bring their copy in, I'll sign them.
0: So, um, the other thing to say is, John, I think it's a sign of the significance of this work. Is that John is doing a talk in the opening night of Jewish Book Week, mm-hmm which is really quite an accolade, I think. So,
1: it's a panel discussion.
0: Panel yeah. discussion. Okay, still pretty yeah. impressive. So um, get there if you can, um, while there's tickets available, if they are. And finally, I just okay, think yeah, we... <coughs> on the of oh, great. Okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> And
1: but before your final coach, can I just say thank you to Andrew and Melissa from Duckworth, who are here this evening, mm. as well as Peter Barr, who have been absolutely tremendous in helping to promote the book, and particularly to Melissa, who organised this evening. So, so okay. thanks to her. We're all,
0: That's yeah. great. Yeah. And so, and I think we need to say thank you to John, to John Lorna, for extraordinary um, talk, really, really interesting, stimulating, and given us all some really... Um, fascinating ideas and thoughts to go home with and um, it has been a tour de force and so I think if we can give a final round of applause Thank
2: you. <laughs> <laughs>